During the investigation, law enforcement dug deep trying to locate anything related to the backgrounds of the victims in the hopes of figuring out a motive in this case. Because the victims were Cuban, political affiliations were explored. They found nothing there. They looked at Dr. Dumois, wondering if anything related to his work as a pediatrician could have been related, any patients that had died under his care, and nothing came up there. The closest they came in that regard was an incident where a thermometer had been left in the bottom of a baby. The child was not injured, but the father was extremely upset. According to the office manager, while the mother of the child wanted to overlook it, the father did not. He was very upset. Consequently, the family chose to get another pediatrician for their child, and they asked for a copy of the child's records, which were provided to them. But the father took it further, and he stormed into the office, demanding to speak with the doctor. He was never able to meet with him, so Dr. Dumois never actually saw this man, which would be relevant if you think it's possible that this father followed the doctor and his family to Anna Maria Island, brought a bike with him, then stalked them until he could feign an injury, get inside their car, and start shooting people. On its face, that would seem an excessive reaction to a situation where the child was not harmed in any way. The office manager described this man, the baby's father, as dark-complected, dark hair, rough, loud-speaking, and wore an outfit that looked like he worked on cars. 30 to 35 years old, 5'8 to 5'10, medium build, and she thought he may have had a faint Spanish accent. None of the documentation that I have tells me whether police followed up on this lead, but I have to assume that they did, and they didn't find anything compelling enough to lead them to think this may have been related to the homicides. The physical description seems off as well, and surely Raymond Barrows would have detected a Spanish accent had this man been the person who approached their car that day. So that's it for the doctor and his profession. There was nothing else police came up with that in any way shed light on his murder and that of his children. They didn't come up with much more on Raymond Barrows. Nothing that wasn't highly speculative, that is. Raymond Barrows was a bell captain at the Key Biscayne in Miami for decades, and he was described by acquaintances as private, quiet, and hardworking. From the International Hotel School website, the following is a list of the bell captain's responsibilities. Ensuring total guest satisfaction and comfort, supervising staff to ensure that they stick to hotel policies and procedures, supervises the transport of luggage and inspecting rooms as guests check in, they provide guests with information about local attractions, and they manage the bell staff and porters by setting work schedules, assigning duties, and supervising the day-to-day -day work. They interview, hire, and train new bell staff according to job specs, and conduct performance reviews and skills training. A bell captain must enjoy working with people in a service capacity, which requires good listening and problem-solving skills. They must commit to service excellence and have a natural ability to inspire staff to make guests their top priority. They have to have tact and poise to respond quickly to guest problems and staff conflicts. They have to have excellent communication and time management skills. And they have to have attention to detail and the ability to oversee others. Now, Raymond Barrows worked for many years in this field at fine establishments including the Shelbourne on Collins Avenue in Miami for a couple years, 
and then the Bancroft a few blocks down for about eight years, and finally the famous Key Biscayne for over 20 years. You don't work that long in places like that, in a position like that, by not being good at your job. And think about how many people that Mr. Barrow saw over the course of his career and from how many places around the world. Miami is an international tourist destination. Barrow's job required attention to detail, among other things, including the ability to read people and assess their needs. So if you're looking for someone who might be a good witness, someone who's got a broader range of history dealing with people from different areas, you could probably do a hell of a lot worse than a bilingual bill captain. And that's why I found it interesting that about 10 days after the incident in a quote for the newspaper, Holmes Beach Police Chief Tom Shanafelt said about Barrows, he's not as good a witness as we'd hoped. I'm not exactly sure what led him to that conclusion. I found Barrow's statements to be very detailed. Now, whether what he recalled matched up to that of other witnesses, well, there were quite a few that didn't match up, but we don't know at this point who was the better witness because the perpetrator was never identified. One of the theories that popped up in this case, some 13 years after the 1980 homicides, came about in April of 1993, when police received an unusual tip that led investigators to interview a well-known mafia associate named Donald Frankos, also known as Tony the Greek. A biography about his life was written by William Hoffman and Lake Headley called Contract Killer. And so this is what the tip entailed. Having read the book, a reader called to inform the investigators that in it, there was a story about a contract killer who used a bicycle to transport him from a car parked two blocks away to the scene of a murder, and he thought the similarities warranted further investigation. Cut to the investigator scooting on down to his local Walden bookstore at the DeSoto Square Mall to purchase a copy of said book for review. Now, I ordered a used audio cassette copy that I found online, as well as a cheap cassette player to listen to it with because this is 2022 and I haven't had a cassette player in decades. When it arrived, I was pretty bummed out to find that the tape inside the cassette was all tangled up. With nothing to lose at that point, I pried open the cassette and performed open cassette surgery, which I am happy to report was a resounding success. The patient lived. Here is the relevant passage, read by actor Joseph Campanella. The next morning, I carefully prepare for the kill. I spread a yellow-tinted makeup on my face and neck, stuffed cotton balls inside my cheeks, and donned a medium afro wig. Next, I placed a sawed-off shotgun in a large hollow-eyed radio I intended to carry. I was ready to hunt for Mr. John Buster de Laval. I went to see a friend who owned a vegetable store near 12th Avenue, which served as a repository for a wide variety of stolen goods. When I walked in, my friend didn't recognize me. Good. I greeted my friend, told him I once again wanted to use the back of his store to chop up a body, then handed him a thousand dollars, the agreed upon price. He didn't want to hear a name, and I didn't give one. Interestingly, the relevant passage, the very next passage after this clip, wasn't included in the audiobook version, so I'm going to read it for you. For six straight days, I repeated the same praise talking routine Dawn the disguise. Drive the stolen Buick with the phony license plates to Lafayette Street, park a block away from the Greek restaurants, unload the bicycle I'd folded into the back seat, place the hollowed-out radio on the handlebars, and pedal by Buster's supposed hangouts. 
He was never there. I hated having to psych myself up a mile high each day, then crash down. It was like getting ready to play the Super Bowl and learning the other team hadn't shown up. Yeah, so that's a little underwhelming from the perspective of it being an actual lead, I mean. Not Mr. Campanella's delivery. That was delightful. I'm not even sure I would call this a lead. You know, something that someone read in a book. Never mind the fact that the source of this material was a contract killer for the mafia and at various times was also a pimp, a drug dealer, and a burglar. He even boasted of killing Jimmy Hoffa and knowing where his body was buried. But that was certainly never corroborated. This is 13 years after the homicides in question, and it wasn't like they had any hot leads to check into at the time. So in a letter dated May 12, 1993, now Major James Foy, Commissioner of the Investigative Bureau of Manatee County Sheriff's Department, wrote this letter to Francos in prison. Dear Mr. Francos, In your autobiography, the recently published book Contract Killer, by William Hoffman and Lake Headley, you reveal numerous killings you and others were responsible for and display a vast knowledge of organized crime over a period of some 30 years. Because of what you know about contract killings and your willingness to share this information with others, and because one or more of these killings involved the use of a bicycle, I am writing to you to see if, by chance, you might know something about an unsolved multiple murder in our county that has the profile of a contract killer. On a hot, humid Friday afternoon, around 5 p.m., on August 1, 1980, in the small island community of Holmes Beach, Florida, a gunman described as a hitchhiker, on a bicycle, shot to death 47-year-old Tampa pediatrician Juan Dumois and his two sons, Eric, 13, Mark, 9, and Holmes Beach resident, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Robert Matsky, retired, who is believed to have confronted the gunman. Also shot was Dr. Dumois' 52-year-old brother-in-law, Raymond Burroughs of Miami. However, Mr. Burroughs recovered from a 22 caliber gunshot in the neck and went on to die some years later. Upon returning from their day of fishing, the Dumois party loaded a yellow boat onto a trailer attached to a tan station wagon and started to leave Kingfish Ramp, whereupon the gunman approached the car from the passenger side and asked for a ride, saying that he had a bad ankle and heard it riding the bicycle, which he was then standing beside. So Mr. Dumois said he would help the gunman and got out of the car, followed by Mr. Barrows. Mr. Barrows asked the gunman if he could help with the bicycle, and the gunman said no, he could manage, and took the bicycle around to the driver's side, where he and Dr. Dumois together put the bike in the boat. The gunman then follows Mr. Barrows around to the passenger side of the car and got in the back seat behind Mr. Barrows, with Mr. Dumois driving and the two children sitting next to the gunman. After this, there was no conversation. Just after the vehicle was on the pavement going toward the gulf, the gunman started shooting everyone in the car. Mr. Barrows first, then Dr. Dumois and the children. The vehicle then came to a rest on the side of the road in a jackknife position, and the gunman got the bicycle from the boat, rode it to the island foodway where he put it back in the car, encountered Colonel Matsky, and shot him in the head, and then left the area and has not been seen since. Each of the victims, except Mr. Barrows, were shot in the head with a 22 caliber projectile. 
Mr. Barrows was shot in the back upper neck. Mr. Dumois, his wife, and brother-in-law, Raymond Barrows, were born in Havana, Cuba. Dr. Dumois and his family lived in Tampa, Florida, where he was a practicing pediatrician. Mr. Barrows worked at the Shelbourne Hotel at 18th Street and Collins Avenue in Miami for some 24 years. The Dumois family, along with Mr. Barrows, were vacationing on Holmes Beach when the killings happened. The scenario suggests that the murderers were a professional hit, with one of the adults in the Dumois car being the target. The small caliber bullet to the victims' heads, the elaborate ruse, the getaway car waiting, the probable disguise, the killer not being known to the victims, the efficiency of the gunman, no known motive, and the overall success of the operation. If you know anything about these murders, we would be grateful for any information you may have. We know it may be a long shot, but we know too that organized crime has ties to the Tampa and Miami area, and there might very well be a connection. Sincerely, Major James Foy. So, a couple things. First, Foy got Barrow's employer at the time of the incident wrong. He had years earlier worked at the Shelbourne, but at the time of the incident, Barrow's worked for the Key Biscayne, and he had for a couple decades. Second, the name Barrow's is spelled two different ways in the letter, and in subsequent communications with inmate Francos, he would say Burroughs instead of Barrow's, taking his cue from the letter itself. Third and most intriguing to me is this mention of a probable disguise, because nowhere have I read anything about a disguise. Perhaps law enforcement has information that they're holding back, but in none of the police reports does it mention that there was a possible disguise being used. But perhaps the most troubling is how much detail Major Foy gives to this mobster. The general rule when you're seeking information from a witness is that you want to give them the least amount of information as possible to see what they know, rather than giving them a boatload of detail from which they can fashion a nice story that might be to your liking. Especially if they are an incarcerated individual who thinks that they could get something from you down the road. So as it turns out, Frankos did have a story to tell. Basically what he said was that a friend of his who was in witness protection with him said a man named Jose Hernandez had committed the murders at his request. He said this person told him, quote, He killed this guy who was holding 55 kilos of cocaine for me. He killed three other people, two kids, uh, the father of the two kids, possibly. He didn't know if it was the father or not. Later, he found out it was in the papers that it was the father and some other guy who was outside the car. And he shot this Raymond Burroughs, and this Raymond Burroughs lived, and he died later on. Francos described Jose Rodriguez as a contract killer and drug dealer. He said Jose had a partner named Tito Cruz, also known as Emilio Bravo. At one point, Francos was even cellmates with Jose while he was on trial for his drug offenses. He said they were both hitmen, so they would exchange stories. Jose and Bravo were partners, and according to Francos, the guy who's now ratting them out, he said he landed in the same prison with them at one point, and Jose told him he had done that hit for a $15,000 contract. He alleged that Raymond Barrows had been holding 55 kilos of coke at the hotel somewhere, and whoever was supposed to get it never did. Franco said that he thought Barrows was a courier and speculated that one of these guys knew him from Cuba. 
When asked why they would have followed him all the way on his vacation and hit him in Holmes Beach and not Miami, where Barrows lived, Franco speculated that maybe Dr. Dumois was also involved. Major Foy asked if Jose told him he wore a disguise, and Franco said no. He did say that Jose was an exercise freak, and he had used bikes on other hits. Franco's described Jose as dark-complected, a little bit darker than olive skin with bushy black hair, 5'9 to 6 foot, brown eyes, and bushy eyebrows. Remember, our killer, as described by Raymond Barrows, had lighter skin with a suntan and light eyes. Franco's told Major Foy that he recorded this story for the book written about him when he had done his audio recordings, but the author did not include the telling of that story along with many others. According to Franco's, he had recorded those tapes in 1987. Major Foy asked him about getting a copy of those tapes, and Franco's encouraged him to contact the author. Now, we don't have any information about whether law enforcement ever got a hold of those alleged audio recordings, and if they did, whether they found this story on them, and further, whether they found it credible. This lead, like all of the others, seems to have died with the passage of time. I will say that Jose Ramon Alvarez Rodriguez, a.k.a. Jose Rodriguez, and Emilio Bravo, a.k.a. Ernesto Cruz, a.k.a. Tito Alexander Olivio Gonzalez, are certainly the types of gentlemen who could pull off a crime like this and would not hesitate to do so. Jose Rodriguez is currently incarcerated for life for kidnapping, taking a hostage, and attempting to escape. The hostage situation is interesting. It occurred when he and his buddy, Emilio Bravo, took a prison guard hostage while in custody at the Federal Metropolitan Correction Center. And this is how that story goes. In early August of 1989, a confidential informant told San Diego Narcotics Task Force that Jose Rodriguez was interested in purchasing 100 kilos of cocaine. Alvarez and Emilio Bravo negotiated with the informant and undercover agents for the $1 million purchase. Fast forward to August 17, 1990, and Jose pled guilty to conspiracy to possess cocaine with intent to distribute and possession of an unregistered firearm. There was a plea deal negotiated, which would entail Jose exchanging truthful information related to the drug trafficking case, and for that the government would recommend a number on the lower end of the sentencing guidelines. After he entered his plea, he was transferred to the U.S. Penn at Lompoc, California, to await sentencing, away from Bravo. Months later, on December 8, 1990, Jose was brought back to San Diego and placed in a cell with Bravo, his old partner, the guy he was now supposed to flip on and provide evidence against, pursuant to his plea bargain. Placing them together in the cell certainly does not seem like it was an inadvertent choice by law enforcement. Now, in the interim, Bravo found out about Jose's deal through his attorney. Jose says Bravo made threats against him to keep him from cooperating with the government. Jose also alleged that the guards refused to transfer him away from Bravo. At a meeting with the U.S. Attorney on December 17, 1990, Jose was uncooperative related to the plea deal, so that same day, he was brought before the court for his sentencing. The government refused to recommend a lower sentence due to his non-cooperation. It is of note that he did not mention at this time that he had been put in the same cell as Bravo 
or that he had been threatened. So he's brought back to his cell later that night, the one he shares with Bravo, his partner in crime, and the guy who had learned he had considered flipping on him and had allegedly threatened him about doing so. Jose testified later that Bravo was happy that he had refused to cooperate. Officers would later testify that both men were unusually quiet that night. At around 9 p.m., two officers, Robert Gibson and Donnie Houston, approached their cell to let the men out for recreation. Due to a miscommunication between the corrections officers, Gibson opened the door, assuming that Houston had already handcuffed Jose and Bravo, which was standard operating procedure. Unfortunately, he had not. Bravo, holding a shank, flew out of the cell and attacked Officer Gibson. Officer Houston testified to being lured into the cell by Jose, who was also armed with a shank, where he was then held inside by force. In court after the incident, Jose would allege that he did not lure the officer, that he had come into the cell to attack him first. The officer outside the cell, Officer Gibson, was able to get Bravo's shank away from him as a trustee inmate made an emergency call for assistance, but Bravo then ran back inside the cell. And then, in another spectacularly horrifying error, prison personnel, not realizing that Officer Houston was still inside, locked him in the cell with Bravo and Jose. Almost immediately, they realized their mistake and ordered the two fine gentlemen to put handcuffs on themselves. I don't think I have to tell you that Bravo and Jose refused, and then they threatened to kill Officer Houston if anyone else entered the cell or tried to get him out. What followed was a 17-hour standoff, where the officer was threatened and physically abused by Alvarez and Bravo. The men made demands. They wanted the keys to the cell, a shotgun to talk to the media, a helicopter or airplane to take them back to Cuba. I think we all know none of that was going to happen. And later, Jose would say that he only participated because Bravo said that he would kill him if he didn't. But there was video of the incident taken, and it showed that Jose himself had control of the shank most of the time, while the two men were holding the officer hostage in their cell. He also participated in the abuse of the officer, and later when he was on the stand testifying about the event, the officer even said that Bravo had taken a nap for about an hour during some point in the standoff. On the second day of the incident, Jose pulled a pillowcase over the officer's head, and Bravo stabbed him. When the officer began to scream, an FBI SWAT team and Bureau of Prisons Special Operations Response Team used an explosive device as a diversion and then made their way into the cell, freeing the captured officer. But adding a cherry to the top of the incident, while Alvarez was in a holding cell the next month, waiting for a court appearance related to the hostage-taking event, he walked out a door to a cell that was left unlocked and made it all the way to a parking garage next to the federal building. Luckily, security in the garage, who saw him on camera, caught him near the ramp as he made his way outside. So yeah, Jose Rodriguez was not a nice guy. But did he kill Dr. Dumois, his boys, and shoot his brother-in-law over 55 kilos of missing coke? From what I can see, I think that seems unlikely. First, Jose most certainly had a Spanish accent, something that Barrows would have noticed when he approached them at the Kingfish boat ramp. 
If you are inclined to say that Raymond Barrows lied, you would have to believe that Raymond Barrows was lying about his description of the perpetrator's accent, and possibly even description, and didn't object to allowing a stranger into the vehicle in the first place, knowing there were bad guys after him already. That seems to fly in the face of common sense. It also seems like a hit that involved following the whole family on vacation and killing the target in the manner that it occurred, in a public place, in a moving vehicle, at a busy time of day, with three other people in the car, was a far more involved plot than just hitting Raymond Barrows himself as he, for example, walked to his car one evening after work in Miami. There also does not appear to have ever been any link made by law enforcement between Raymond Barrows and the drug underworld. It seems that that was just another theory among many theories over the years related to the homicides known as the Kingfish Boat Ramp murders. All of the Jose Hernandez 55 kilo business occurred over a decade after the incident. Desperate times, desperate measures, but there was an equally desperate attempt to look at the case from another tenuous angle very early on with the use of psychics. On September 15, 1980, law enforcement was, in its own words, rapidly approaching a dead end. So Chief Shanafelt penned a letter to renowned psychic Dorothy Allison in care of an address on Madison Avenue in New York City. A month later, Allison would be in Atlanta, working on a famous case with other detectives hunting the killer of murdered black children. As all of you are aware, several weeks ago, the Bureau of Police Services extended an invitation to Mrs. Allison to come to this city to assist us in investigations that are before us at this moment. We did so because Mrs. Allison enjoys a national reputation as a person who has been of assistance with other police departments in this country in dealing with cases of the nature that we're dealing with today. We also invited her because the Bureau of Police Services is committed to doing everything that's humanly possible to bring this nightmare to an end. And in that context, we're very pleased that Mrs. Allison could accept our invitation. And on behalf of the City of Atlanta and the Bureau of Police Services, I want to extend a warm welcome to you, Mrs. Allison. At this time, again, I'm going to tell all of you, I will say nothing whatsoever that is ever going to hurt me in space. We're going to be working very hard. We're going to work day and night. I do have many thoughts, many ideas. These police, you have to get used to me. They've got to understand me. And this is why some of the men that are here today with me will help interpret my clues. And since I've already gotten feelings, just on a radio show, I've, got, I've gotten a lot of feelings. I knew about a little boy's name. I've never been to Atlanta. I also knew that there was one little child that had something to do near a hospital, that I would find his body there between a school and a hospital. I was told by some reports, I don't remember who, because many were calling me, that one was found there. I also got other feelings, but certainly my, the greatest thing I can do is try to get the man that is doing this or the woman, whoever it may be. I don't want to say who, what, where, or when. Not at this time. 
I just want to go out and get the verses that's doing it and putting them to it. A Washington Post article at the time opened with this line. She bills herself as a psychic bloodhound, sniffing after bad vibrations. She claims she knows who the killer is, and she sees him in her dreams. She taunts him to make a move. He wouldn't dare murder any more children. She vows to jousting TV cameras, not while she's hot on his trail. One of the Atlanta detectives dubbed her that wacko broad, saying, quote, she rode around in a big limousine, ate real well for three days, and then went home. Dorothy Allison was described in the L.A. Times in 1999 by reporter Myrna Oliver after her death as a 54-year-old Edith Bunker lookalike from Nutley, New Jersey. That article begins with a line that left me chuckling. Quote, when she was a child, neighbors thought she was a witch. Welcome to the club, sister. We're all witches here. Anyway, Dorothy Ellison operated as a psychic for about three decades, saying that she'd worked on more than 5,000 cases for law enforcement agencies. There were some cases that she and others would point to as successes. For example, in 1967, she told the Nutley police about a dream she had of a blue-eyed, blonde child with shoes on the wrong feet. She said he was drowned in a pond and stuck in a drain pipe. A month later, a child matching that description was found in a drain pipe. His shoes were on the wrong feet. The infamous Patty Hearst's father asked her to help with his daughter's case. She gave details about locations that proved correct regarding states where Patty had been, and she had also accurately predicted that Hearst would help her captors rob a bank. But there were other members of law enforcement who said that Dorothy Allison was a fraud and lied about her assistance in cases, claiming credit for things that she had not done. That L.A. Times article I spoke about earlier drew to a close noting that, quote, the diminutive Allison could hurl epithets at critics and child abusers alike, describing her habit of wearing a St. Anthony medallion and sleeping with pictures of the missing children that she called her little angels. All in all, it sounds like she had an interesting life, and not all that different than the games that armchair detectives play online, speculating, guessing, theorizing. When he reached out to her for help on the case, Chief Shanafelt only knew of the famous Dorothy Allison, not the one who would be, years later, vetted against the facts. The first paragraph of his typewritten letter to her evokes an image. You can almost hear that famous click and whir of a Polaroid camera spitting out that stiff single shot that slowly emerges out of the haze as you wave it around in front of you to speed up the process. It is with great interest, he said, that I was able to view your appearance on the Phil Donahue show this past week. I was home for lunch at the time, and my wife directed my attention to the show. It is my understanding that you confine your personal involvement to only those cases of homicide where children are the victims. It is in this regard that I am writing. This paragraph has the word delete handwritten next to it, as do the final two paragraphs of his draft, I assume because whoever proofread it decided to cut out the niceties and stick to the facts. When in a month, Chief Shanafelt heard nothing back from the psychic, he penned another letter, this time to Sal Lubertazzi, a law enforcement officer with the Nutley, New Jersey Police Department in Dorothy Allison's jurisdiction. 
There's no further inkling in the report regarding whether the police chief ever got in touch with Allison, but there are a series of notes that appear to be from another psychic in August, prior to his writing this letter to Dorothy Allison. In the police report, it's handwritten notes that are then transcribed into a typed document, the content of which ricochets from phrase to phrase, that usual scattershot approach to unveiling information that we generally see when psychics are involved in law enforcement investigations. Watch for these names. Joe, Phil, Larry, Judy, Mary, Marcia. Phillips as a last name. White House, green trim. The number 1022 is important. Hospital. Someone in and out or works in one. Killer is hiding out at home. Definitely in this area. 1022 keeps coming up. Possibly a date of birth. Gun in a manhole. He thinks in Bradenton. The old house. Possibly apartments inside. Other single men. The car you may be looking for belongs to a friend. Look for an older white Dodge convertible and he drives a Honda motorcycle to the beach sometimes. The killer is psychotic and can play many different roles. Sees him with lingerie. People will be shocked. He is not what he appears to be. There is danger for a gray-haired person, possibly a pharmacist or druggist. A drugstore on the main road in a shopping center going to the beach. Rexall, maybe a robbery. You're looking for a gay bar. The killer is known there. Think transvestite. The handwritten note screams this in all caps with an exclamation point. The word transvestite is used multiple times in the psychic readings, a word no longer used today. We now use the word transgender. And the psychic's reporting leans heavily into the idea that the perpetrator is either transgender or is dating someone transgender, and it mentions gay bars repeatedly. The psychic notes mention a lumberyard where the perpetrator possibly works part-time, that he comes to the beach a lot, that he rides his bike there, a 10-speed, red, white, and blue. The readings keep going back to a Ramada Inn and a gun and a manhole, a female friend on Spring Street named Judy. The killer was described as a jack-of-all-trades, possibly a bartender, along with the lumber company. He worked out with weights, clean-cut, eyes further apart than the composite drawing in the paper. Now, obviously, not a single one of those things I just listed is a fact. And I mainly presented it to show you that they didn't have much to go on. It seems as though, over four decades later, law enforcement is not in any better place with this investigation as they were from day one. In the next episode, I am pleased to share an interview with you that I did. You will hear directly from the son of Raymond Barrows, his namesake, Ray Barrows. Stay tuned. <laughs>